Hello, hello, John Elder here, science editor with The New Daily. Welcome to the very first episode of our podcast series. What does that mean? Science, health and anything else that needs explaining is our beat. In this episode, we learn about the risks and the surprising benefits of having babies in a COVID pandemic. We talk to the author of a terrific book called Eat Like the Animals. Basic premise is that other creatures, even slime, hunt out the nutrients they need, an ability that human beings have lost. Our resident money man, Ewan Black, explains the pros and cons of being paid a basic wage for doing nothing. And psychologist Lynn Bender explains why some people throw tantrums as a COVID coping strategy. But first, some news from the deep. At least 16 species of deep sea fish have an invisibility cloak as a protection against predators. Scientists from Duke University found that bottom dwellers, such as the common fangtooth, the Pacific black dragon, the anglerfish, and the black swallower have evolved ultra black skin that allows them to hide in the dark. Well, it is a necessary move because there are no plants to hide behind at 1600 meters below where the sun doesn't shine or even smolder. The only light a mile down comes from bioluminescence, creatures that glow in the dark. To evade such creatures, the ultra black fish have gone beyond hide in the shadows. They have become the shadows. The ultra black skin absorbs more than 99.5% of the light that shines their way. And when held up against a bright light, these fish appear as silhouettes. The darkest species they found was a tiny anglerfish said to be not much longer than a golf tee. It soaks up so much light that almost none, 0.04%, bounces back. How is this so? According to a statement from Duke, the invisibility cloak is made up of tiny packets of pigment within their skin cells called melanosomes. Regular fish and amphibians have these, but in deep sea fish they're arranged and layered to create a continuous protective cloak around the body. In related news, some fish can apparently recognize and groom themselves in a mirror. It probably helps to have the lights on though. Last week, the New Daily reported concerns that COVID-19 could see thousands of Australian women missing out on having children. Is this necessary? Obstetrician and gynaecologist Dr Kate Kerridge is here with us to give advice on how expectant mums can navigate their birth and birth recovery during COVID in the safest way possible. Hello, Kate. Hello. Thanks for having me. All right. So what's the story well, I, I guess, I mean, we had this sort of two trains of thought. We sort of laughed whether we'll have a massive influx of corona babies that were conceived because nobody had anything to do in isolation. <laughs> so that remains to be seen. And certainly, um, you know, new early pregnancies are pretty healthy at the moment. We're watching them all sort of come on board and I'll ask them, was this a corona baby? And they're like, oh, yes, sort of. So there is that. So there's sort of the, the possibility that maybe there'll actually be more babies, but the anxiety comes from predominantly financial concerns, I'd say. So, sure, they're worried about health, but I feel like the economic 
turbulence is is a massive thing, sort of thinking, well, will I have a job? How are we going to afford this? And people are sort of looking and projecting, you know, forward and, and that is making a, a, a small part of their decision. And the second thing I think for some people is fertility. So lots of people were planning on fertility treatments. You can imagine thousands of IVF cycles um, around Australia and when IVF was obviously considered non-essential and we had to scale back these services, um, there's a, a ton of anxiety there as people thought, oh my gosh, how long is this going to last? When are we going to get our chance? So that's the other reason we may also see a decline in pregnancies, just simply no no access to services. Oh, well, that's that's pretty concrete, isn't it, on, the, on that score? Mm-hmm. But on the, on the thing of navigating birth and birth recovery safely, what's the what's the advice there? Well, I think it is a case of not scaremongering um, as medical professionals, but being sort of presenting just the facts as we know them. And obviously with COVID, the difficulty is it's an emerging disease. It's emerging research. I think we have to remember that the flu, the good old seasonal flu, uh, is much more dangerous to a pregnancy, we believe. Um, So if you're just comparing uh, a pregnant woman getting COVID or the flu, we think that the flu is more likely and more likely to be, you know, damaging. Um, and so we have dealt with illnesses like this before. It's just that COVID's obviously a, a headline story, but you sort of say, look, the precautions are the same as a pregnant person. You're not more likely to get it. You are more likely to get a severe form of COVID, but are equally likely as any other person your age to recover fully. And you, so just just, just scaling that back a bit. So with pregnancy, you are more likely to get a severe case if you've got it. Is because your body's around already under stress. Yeah, and the immune system is is lower suppressed in pregnancy just by its nature, and the respiratory issues are the main thing, which is also why we worry about the flu. And back in the day, we had the swine flu, SARS. Um, ordinary seasonal flu, it's the respiratory system that's particularly compromised in a pregnant woman. We get sort of edema, so extra fluid throughout the respiratory system, which means that then when we get sick on top, it's more difficult if we ever have to ventilate a pregnant woman. Not only is the respiratory system different, but they've got also then the pressure of a baby in their abdomen. So there are complicating factors with pregnancy and respiratory illness. So it's really predominantly the fact that it's a respiratory illness that makes us worried. So it's of equal concern to any of those other ones. So it's sort of like putting it in perspective. Just uh, just dialing you yeah. back just a second, if I might, you said that uh, flu is found to be more dangerous to pregnant women than COVID. Is that based on the statistical understanding that there have been very few? I've seen one report of, of um of a baby in utero contracting COVID. I think I've only yes, seen one right. story, and that's around the world. So is it, is it on the basis of that, that that it seems to be a very rare occurrence? Correct. And, yeah, it's obviously the flu so much more prevalent. And I think we've seen great statistics this year where um, flu va- the flu vax is one of the recommended vaccinations in pregnancy, so for all pregnant women, they we would expect them or hope that they'd have the flu vax. Obviously, the uptake has been amazing this year and throughout the general population. And as a result, we've seen far less flu cases, far less significantly or severely ill people and including pregnant patients. So, 
you know, we're seeing that, that that we are actually even able to deal with that. But I feel like the flu's been able to be focused on and sort of saying, look, we can also stop this while we're thinking about COVID. It's sort of got us thinking about general hygiene, vaccinations, what we can do. And the other issue with the flu and the issue with any respiratory sort of situation um, like, like COVID is the fever that comes with. That's the other dangerous part for a pregnancy. And there's very limited research at the moment about it. Um, but we, we know that febrile illness in the first trimester is not a, not great. Um, in second and third trimesters, it can potentially cause preterm labor. And so it's not so much the disease itself, but the effects of the disease on the pregnant body that are most concerning. But I think just to look on the bright side, the flip side, there's been an article that came out this week looking at some sort of positive outcomes. And they're saying there's a small study from Denmark and from Ireland that during this COVID period, for whatever reason, and different experts have jumped in and said why they think or it has or hasn't actually occurred, but it's certainly showing promising results. It shows that um, during the COVID people, period, people have had uh, fewer preterm births. Some yeah. people are postulating that that's actually because the pregnant woman is under, in, in some ways, less stress. There's not the commute to and from work. They may be working from home. Partners may actually be home and sort of sharing the load with the pregnancy or with care of other children. And also just um, like the simple things we're just talking about with regards to the flu, there's less exposure to the ordinary bacteria, viruses. So they're not getting common illnesses um, and being worn down like that. And I think that's a pretty interesting study. You it's know, a very interesting study. And all right. So it, so there's a lot there's a lot of upside there. I guess basically the, the main bit of advice is the same advice that's going to everybody about self-protection during this time. Correct. I think that's exactly it. You know, we know the basic advice, but personally to looking at, at my um, clients, I would err more towards the side of this newer studies coming out, giving some positives. We can't do anything about coronavirus. It's clearly here to stay and we can only take the precautions that we've been advised. But I do think we can look at the merit that, you know, we are living a slower life. We're spending more time with our family. We're sharing the load where we wouldn't have been able to. We're seeing um, flexible working conditions. We're getting creative with communication. And I think they're pretty awesome positives that maybe we need to kind of grab onto. So whether you're pregnant, thinking about pregnancy, I think we're just thinking about it in a different frame now, and that's and that's okay. Oh, that's great. Hey, Kate Carriage, fantastic talking to you. I hope we talk again. Thanks very much. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. And now an explainer from the world of money from the New Dailies. Finance editor Ewan Black. Hello, Ewan. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about the pros and cons of a universal basic income. Now, this is a payment. A universal basic income is a payment made to all adult individuals. Yes. It allows them to meet their basic needs, and it's you don't have to work for it. Yes. Uh, a paper from the Australian government, 2016, sort of said the idea wasn't new but until recently had been pushed to the fringes of policy debate. How has it become more central to debate? How has it become um, a genuine thing? Mm. Yeah, John, I think the reason it's, it's coming back into some kind of policy circles is 
Um, the fact that this pandemic has kind of thrown out the rule book in terms of what we commonly regard as kind of good economic management. Uh, I guess in a, in a matter of weeks, the Australian government kind of abandoned its idea, you know, keeping the budget, getting the budget back in black and um, being very prudent with spending and announced hundreds of billions of dollars, which they kind of had to do. They announced this massive spending package to shore up the economy and help households and businesses through this really tough time as people lose their jobs. And I think what this showed or suggested to a lot of people is if you can spend so much money so quickly, then why can't we do this more often? Why um, perhaps we can afford to do be a bit more generous with our, our benefits to unemployed people and with our welfare and safety net more broadly? So, yeah, so there, there are people talking about universal basic income again. And like you said, it's this, it's this premise that the government pays every Australian adult, no matter whether they've got a job or, or not, uh, a set monthly handout. And the idea is that this handout will be large enough for people to kind of get by, meet their basic needs, even if they don't have a job. Uh, it's, it's All right. Yeah. Well, at the moment, we've got Job Seeker and Job Keeper, and they've been quite a big deal, but they're already being scaled back. So the Australian government really doesn't have, uh, doesn't seem to have a great enthusiasm for, for this being a long-term approach. But, but other places do, Ewan. Uh, Canada has, has been conducting a, an incredible experiment, probably the world's largest. Uh, more than 8 million Canadians have applied. And I think they were offered a, a no-strings-attached fixed annual income of about 17 grand for individuals and 24000 for a couple, which it's a bit of an incentive to actually get someone. You're better off being on your own, maybe. Mm-hmm. But um, tell us about the pros and cons. What's the, what, what, what would be good and, and how it could really be a useful thing and how it could be a bit of a disaster? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest or draw towards this policy or the kind of biggest kind of positive is this idea that, firstly, it kind of puts a floor on, it kind of helps people kind of get by and live a you know, decent life without a job. And it also, I think it, because it's universal, it kind of reduces the stigma around claiming welfare. And there's fewer hoops to jump through to get it right now. You know, right now you have to do mutual obligation requirements. You have to tick a lot of boxes to get benefits from the government. So it, it makes it, it, the system a lot simpler. And it also kind of provides some decency to people's lives if you, if you pay it at a level that kind of is high enough. But where it comes into, I think the biggest downside, the biggest question mark over it, and the reason this government at least won't introduce it, is the cost of the scheme. And also the inequity, because you'll, you'll be paying millionaires this, this, this fee as well. And even though you get some of the uh, money back by the tax system, you're still having to give that money out and it's still costing the budget to do that. But if we go back to the, the cost of it, um, I mean, to put it into perspective, the current job seeker payment of $1,100 a fortnight, which right now is only going to around 1.6 million Australians, so definitely not every adult. That's estimated to cost $14 billion over six months. So, you know, you scale that up, you're getting into probably the hundreds of billions to, to, to pay it on an annual basis to every Australian if it's going to be similar to that amount. So, yeah, that's the, that's the main thing. Yeah, the interesting stuff. All right, well, thank you very much, you and Black. Thanks, John. If you're looking for the perfect telemarketing scam... What about this as a sales pitch? Declining eyesight getting you down? Staring at our magic red light for three minutes a day can recharge the cells in your eyeballs and you'll be seeing colours once more in all their glory. Not only that, but your ability to see things in low light will also be on the improve. 
In fact, these are the findings of a new study from the University College London's Institute of Ophthalmology, the first of its kind in humans. Here is the drift. By the time we turn 40 or so, the cells in our retinas begin to age. Indeed, they age faster than any other part of our body. The reason is a simple one. Our ability to see color takes a lot of energy. This energy comes from mitochondria, the engine room in our cells. And it's the retinal mitochondria that starts to wind down with a 70% loss of energy production over a lifetime and a decline in photoreceptor function. At the beginning of this small human study, participants aged between 28 and 72 and who had no ocular disease had their rod and cone sensitivity tested. They then were given a small LED torch to take home and were asked to look into its deep red light beam for three minutes a day for two weeks. They were then retested for their rod and cone sensitivity. For the younger participants and their youthful eyes, there was no impact. But in those around 40 years and over, the ability to detect colors improved by up to 20%. The improvements were more significant in the blue part of the color spectrum that is more vulnerable in aging. As the scientists explain it, these brief exposures to long wavelength light recharges the energy system that has declined in the retina cells, rather like recharging a battery, they say. Zap. Does COVID-19 turn some people into babies? How does it happen? And how do you get past it? Lynn Bender, psychologist, tell me, is that true? Well... I think in, when we're frightened or at the very least insecure, we regress in our behaviour quite often. We want protection. We want someone that's going to lead us to safety. And it's a Freudian concept that you start to see leaders as kind of parental figures and you're the child, you're the one who needs support, especially in situations where they're making all the decisions just as when you were a child. You didn't make the decisions. It was all decided, pretty well decided for you. Um, so leadership gets to be extremely significant at times like this. And um, one way in which that that's where um, Winnicott, who talks about the good enough parents, would say that um, this is psychoanalytic school, of course, but the trust, the basic trust is so important. The trust in the authorities becomes extremely important and leaders who are perceived as trustworthy and competent will engage people to accept changes and behaviours that they mightn't have accepted in the past. Well, that's, that's turning ourselves over and, and putting our trust in people to, to get us through a good part of what's going on. But yes. I guess when I ask about the idea of people turning into babies, which is, it is a rude way of saying that some people can become a bit infantilised. And we see this in, in perhaps in the, in, in the negative ways, perhaps, that people have responded to COVID-19, but also to the social expectation that now comes with living at this time, to behave in a certain way, to be part of the bigger group, to play our part. Mm-hmm. And some people just seem to respond to that 
with a bit of a tantrum, is it, you might say. Yes. I actually encountered someone throwing a tantrum in the supermarket and um, not throwing food out of the um, trolley but refusing to go till the manager was called because she felt offended that she'd had to wait. Right. Um, and then wanting the police to come. And do you, you know, feel that because she was she was feeling this general COVID stress, this was her poor way of coping with it? Yes, because when we're small and we feel powerless, we we have the capacity to show rage and object and protest in fairly impotent ways, really, as a child, because you don't have a lot of power as a child to force decisions. And um, nevertheless, it's an old coping strategy and right. um, not a very good one, I might add. <laughs> and it's also um, may be part of our very individualistic culture and uh, the idea that... We can do what we want to do. Yeah, I will decide, you know, whether I wear a mask. Uh, how, how can we recognise in ourselves that maybe we're having a bit of an infantilised uh, response to what's going on? It also speaks to a bit of vulnerability. How can we sort of identify this in ourselves and how can we kind of get past it and get with the, get with the more productive program, so to speak? Well, information um, can be really important, listening to the medical rationale for it. The other thing that helps is seeing people we respect and admire taking on these behaviours. So, you know, if you respect the Premier or if you respect the health, Commonwealth Health Officer, and if you see the Chief Medical Officer actually wearing a mask, you think, oh, okay, oh, that must be okay. The more, the more people that do it, the more people will do it. That's a general truth about human behaviour. All right. Well, thank you, Lynn. Yes, you're welcome. Professor David Rabenheimer is the University of Sydney's Leonard P. Ullman Chair in Nutritional Ecology. He's also co-author of a terrific new book, Eat Like the Animals. The basic premise is that animals in the wild choose the foods that are good for them. They meet their nutritional uh, needs. Human beings once had that capacity, but we've lost it. Now, David, the first thing I have to ask you about is Stella the baboon and what you learned from her. Well, Stella the Baboon was a fascinating study. It was um, uh, Kayleigh Johnson, a PhD student um, in the lab of my colleague Jessica Rothman, um, uh, decided to uh, collaborate with uh, me on a project uh, looking at nutrient selection in a primate in the wild, in the uh, baboon. But rather than follow a single animal, for a single, or follow several animals for a single day, which is a typical way of doing it. She decided to follow a single animal for 30 days to get a detailed record of what she ate over a long time period, a month, basically. And what she found was that even though there was a wide variety of foods that were eaten on a day-to-day -day basis, on a daily basis, Stella ate a very precise balance. She regulated a very precise balance of macronutrient intake, the balance of protein to non-protein energy, carbohydrates and fats. On a daily basis, regardless of what she had eaten, she always got back to roughly a, a proportion of one to five, one protein to five non-protein energy. And that suggested that what she's doing is she's selecting a wide from a wide range of foods, 
specifically in order to balance her nutrient intake. But basically what, what uh, Katie noticed was that when she totaled combined calories from carbs and fats each day and plotted that figure on a graph against the amount of protein consumed each day, there was this tight relationship. It meant the ratio of protein to fats and carbs, as this is from your book, had remained absolutely consistent over the course yeah, of that month. Yeah, it consistent, um, both within days and, of course, across days. And protein to carbohydrates and fats is a very important um, uh, aspect of, of dietary balance in, in many animals, including humans. And Stella was able to maintain that very constant. What's the, what's the mechanism there that, allows, uh, uh, that allowed her to do that? According to the book, there are these five appetites that animals tend to pursue, but how do they discern one food type from another? Well, it's, 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 it's complex. It involves a, a range of physiological mechanisms interacting and to maintain homeostasis in the animal. So the, the first of those, of course, is taste receptors. So we, um, like Estella the baboon and all of the other animals that we've studied and we discuss in the book, have taste receptors that can specifically distinguish uh, proteins, uh, fats and carbohydrates, salts, uh, even calcium. There's evidence for calcium. So it's that circulating signals in the body have been identified associated with the various nutrients for which animals have um, these specific appetites. Um, and, and thirdly is neural pathways. So what they right. have is they have these mechanisms associated with particular nutrients to ensure that they eat those nutrients in the right quantities to meet their current requirements for them. And it's the interaction of those appetites that enables them to obtain a balanced diet in the same way as what uh, Stella did in, in that study. So the body, the body basically tells them, okay, you've had enough of this and you need a bit more of that, and, and it responds accordingly. It's, um, it's, it seems an astonishingly precise result. That's exactly right. Um, it is an astonishingly uh, precise result, but if you think about it in evolutionary terms, it's not that astonishing. It would be astonishing if animals hadn't evolved mechanisms to balance their nutrient intake in that way. Because nutrition is such an important part of so many evolutionary issues, health issues, reproduction. It's involved in all aspects of our biology. If you'd think one thing would be perfected through evolution, it would be nutrition. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing these mechanisms called nutrient-specific appetites that have evolved specifically in order to enable animals to satisfy their requirements for nutrients and actually change their intake of nutrients as those requirements change. One of the most astonishing things in the book is the story of slime mold and how if slime mold, these, these uh, single-cell uh, organisms are essentially presented with a, with a buffet of food, they'll actually seek out the, the type of food that they actually need and in the right amount. I, I find that kind of mind-blowing. So that's exactly right. As I was saying, um, it's so important to get the right amount and balance of nutrients that, that our prediction was that all animals, 
all organisms would have evolved the capacity to do that. And the slime molder is remarkable for its simplicity. It's basically a single cellular organism. And what that study demonstrated is even organisms that simple have the capacity to balance their diets in the way that Stella the baboon did. And all of the other species that we've studied, which now amount to approximately 50. I suppose on one level, I, I sort of think about the slime mold and think in some ways because of its simplicity, you, you tend to, uh, I suppose in, in a rude way of putting it, is it's so governed by its chemistry that in a way that kind of makes sense. Whereas higher order animals, there'd be variables there that could make that make it that they're led astray, so to speak, by, a, by a, a, an appetite, say, for sugar or such. But that seems to be mainly the lot of human beings, that we've, we're the ones... Um, the, allegedly the highest order of animal, but we're the ones who've gone astray. How did it happen? Well, that, that's an interesting point you raise. At one level, I would expect the greater complexity, the evolution of nervous systems and complex brains to assist animals in balancing their diets in the face of um, often complex environmental challenges. And, and that is what we find. Um, if you look around us, I study a lot of primates in the wild, and if you look at primates, they're remarkably good, as we've seen with Stella the baboon at balancing the nutrient intake on a daily basis. So they use that complexity in their um, favor when it comes to selecting a healthy diet. Now, humans are a really interesting case because they've taken that one step further, and our large brains have invented culture, and by a culture, what we've done is we've Rather than operate effectively within our food environment, we've created a new food environment. So it all started, well, initially way back in uh, human evolutionary history with uh, the use of tools, um, stone tools, for example, and later more complex tools were used um, in large part for foraging, for, for hunting and gathering and processing foods. Then there was agriculture, a massive uh, cultural shift which changed the availability of nutrients in our environment, um, specifically carbohydrates in, um, in, in cultivating um, grains and fruits and carb-rich um, plant-based uh, foods, and then uh, fats and proteins as well um, through animal agriculture. And most recently, um, with increasing technological capability, we've industrialized the food supply. And so what we found in our work is that we, as humans, we still have those basic mechanisms that all of the other animals that we studied have for balancing a diet, but they don't operate properly within our altered environments. When I was reading this, I was thinking that, that our psychology has sort of led us to, to use food as a, as a comfort device, and, and I don't know if other animals do that. So there's that. The other thing I was thinking is that I wonder whether it was our consumption of fiber and our, lo our dropped consumption of fiber was, was a, a turning point for human beings and certainly a negative one. I mean, we don't eat enough fiber now. Our fellow primates seem to have a high fiber diet. Our low fiber diet uh, has had also all manner of consequences. The, I'm thinking about the, the gut brain access and, and, and things like that. That's exactly right. Fiber is a very important part of that transformation that industrialization um, has brought on our food environment. So in food processing, 
Um, there are a number of things that tend to be common to highly processed foods, which um, there's now a lot of evidence that that's what's driving the problem. Our appetite systems are effectively fooled or hacked by those industrial foods. And one of the problems is the removal of fiber. Fiber acts, um, as you say, among um, other functions, fiber acts as a break to our appetite system. So it satisfies or satiates us. And if you remove that from foods, we will overeat um, energy before we reach the point that we normally should be um, satiated if we were eating, for example, fruits that have a higher fiber content. What really exacerbates this, and this is a major theme of the book, is the dilution of protein in highly yes. processed foods. Protein is an expensive nutrient, and in food processing, it's often present at low levels relative to fats and carbohydrates. And what we've shown in our work on humans, as well as many other species, is that the strongest of all of the nutrient-specific appetites is the protein appetite. And what that means is if we dilute protein in our diet with fats and carbohydrates, we're going to eat more food and hence more fats and carbohydrates in order to get the same amount of protein in the diet as we otherwise would, the same absolute amount to reach our what we call the protein target, the level of protein intake that satiates us. And this is what we call the protein leverage effect, where dilution of protein in our food system through the industrialization and highly, particularly through, um, through high levels of food processing has resulted in us overeating fats and carbohydrates because of that strong protein appetite. Do you see there's any way to get back? I mean, yes, we can become mindful and, and, and work, work out of a book to control our diet, but do you see that is there any way of, of, us, of us going back to being able to do this in a more natural way, or, or is it too late for, for humans? So we, have we kind of No, no, it's lost? not too late at all. That's a fantastic question. The issue, um, as I've said, is that we've got uh, fantastic biological mechanisms that are interacting with an inappropriate food environment with a, a mutated food environment um, driving the problem. So the way that we can deal with it is simply by paying attention to our food environment. And that's not a complex thing to do because there's now a lot of evidence that the problem with the food environment is this massive preponderance of highly processed foods. Now, we can't, in the short term at least, um, change that at a global scale, or even a national scale, or even a regional, even within supermarkets. But where we can change it is in the food environments which are most important to each and every one of us, which is our homes. So what we need to do is, is ensure that we stock our pantries and fridges using our brains armed with that simple bit of knowledge. And then when our appetite, leave the rest to our appetites. Let our appetite select from um, a, the healthy food environment that we've created in a way that they've evolved to do, like Stella the Baboon has, um, for millions of years. Well, that's right, isn't it? You'd have to think if a slime mold can get it together, then, um, then we should at least at least make the effort. Uh, David Ramenheimer, I'm very grateful for you to be on today. Um, we've had a few technical issues, but thank you very much. Uh, that's a pleasure, John. Thank you for, for asking me. So what does that mean? For now, it means we've wrapped this episode and already at work on the next. 
If you have a science, health or psychology question for what does that mean, write to me, John Elder at jelder at thenewdaily.com.au and we'll see if we can find an answer. In the meantime, thanks for listening.